Hallelujah. He is the Savior, the one who deserves all praise. And it's good to take time and reflect that he is the one who saves. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Finishing up the chapter. Paul has talked about unity. He said that unity is based on the gospel. Now he's taking some time to reflect on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Last week we started that and we talked about the wise, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of the age, the ones who demand signs, the ones who look for wisdom, and how God has come to reverse all the things that we look toward and how we are to grasp the foolishness and the weakness of God. I don't know if you've ever sat down, if you ever have time, and thought back through your life and wished there were things in your life that you could change. That happens to me. I'm still young, but it happens to me. Sometimes I move from my own life and I move to other people's lives and wishing there were things in their lives I could change. Then I move into history and I'm like, boy, I wish. Sometimes I have too much time on my hands. <laughs> but you think about it, you know, there's some things in history you wish that you could change. Like, you wish you could go back to Germany and make sure Hitler never became Führer of Germany. Maybe you wish you could go back in Germany and become the Führer of Germany. You know, you never know who what you want to change. Perhaps you want to go back to the Civil War and make sure that didn't happen, or go back to seven, the 1780s when they were starting the Constitution, wished that they had made a stronger stand against slavery in the Constitution. Perhaps there's lots, you could go back into time, all these different things in history you wish you could change, and sometimes, sometimes, I wish I could go back to the very beginning of time and tell Adam and Eve, do not take that fruit and eat it. I wish I could do that. But then after I reflect on that, I realize it would be no use. Because no matter how much we want to change about history or other people's lives or our lives, humans are humans. And even if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten that fruit, someone else would have. Because humans are humans. Paul writes about humanity and how humanity has consistently turned to the wrong things to trust. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Will you pray with me?
Father, thank you that you are the God who is in control. You are the God who is more wise than we are. You are the God who is more strength than we are. You are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is yours. You are the God who created all things. And by your hand, they are sustained. You are the God who draws us to yourself in spite of all our sinfulness and weakness. And you call us your own. You sent your son to die for us that we might live. And not only live, but live abundantly. Having a relationship with the creator of the universe. Lord, that is an amazing thought. Thank you that you are the God who is in control, sovereign, who controls the affairs of nations and brings about history to its desired end. We don't have to wonder why things happen, wish we change things, because you are the God who is in control and brings the best things out of what we think is the worst. Thank you for being that God and for being our God. Lord, today as we study your word, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Humanity has consistently turned to the wrong things to trust. Consistently. From Adam and Eve until now, until Jesus comes again, humanity has consistently turned to the wrong things to trust. When humans stand before the judgment seat of God, all lined up, and they were asked, did you choose God or did you choose everything else? They will consistently say, I chose everything else. Every single day of our lives. We know this is true because we do it from an early age. Consider a high school student, the typical high school student. What does he or she base her emotional security on? Base it on how people view them or how they are treated instead of on the God who calls and gives them worth. When you talk to a typical high school student, what do they base their future career on? They base it on how much money they will get or the prestige that comes from a certain position. They don't base it on how can I serve God and where is he leading me? This doesn't change, not just with teens, so much of our culture. As we grow into adults, is based upon who has power and who doesn't. Whatever we think brings power. And I, I shouldn't step into politics, so forgive me. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. There's, but I'm going to. Oh, oh, this is not good. This is not good. This past year, so many people have been up in arms about a concept of CRT. Lots of people. If you, if you study CRT, it is based on who has power in a situation and who does not. And, and people through CRT want to even the playing field about, between who has power and who does not. It all comes down to power in CRT. Unfortunately, 
with everyone who is up in arms either for or against CRT. If you look at all their arguments and boil them down, all the the arguments for and against CRT is based on power as well. Very few people actually study what Scripture says and bring about it from a theological and biblical point of view. It's all cultural and power in the arguments around it. So, Notice I did not say anything for or against the political situation. If you want to know my view on it, we can talk about it in the office with glass between me and you. All right. (laughs) Humanity doesn't change in what they pursue. So what do we pursue as humans? Paul brings out three main areas that humans tend to focus on as they grow up in life. Three things which are pretty universal that we turn to, that we trust instead of God. He says in verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. His list here is very interesting, especially if you consider what he says at, in verse 31. In verse 31, he's quoting a verse from the Old Testament. Verse 31, he says, as it is written, let the one boast, boast in the Lord. And that verse, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. And if you look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, it's exact parallel to what he is saying here in 1 Corinthians 1. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Both Jeremiah and Paul list three parallel things, areas that humans tend to run to, to trust instead of God. First, Jeremiah and Paul says that humans trust in wisdom. They trust in wisdom. This is not a reference to godly wisdom, but to human intellect. This is the person who stand up and says, yes, I know you know the Bible says that. I know you believe there is a God, but I, you must prove to me the existence of God. Because I can, if I cannot understand it with my mind, I cannot believe it or accept it as true. That's that type of person. It's also the type of person who, when they're in a conversation, will not humbly listen to someone else in the discussion, but quickly forces their own understanding into the mix. Yes, I know you think that is true, but I have everything. I know. I am right. This is the person who pursues human intellect, human wisdom. Humans have always sought to exalt understanding. They've always sought to to know things with our minds beyond a shadow of a doubt. We see it through all the cultures in the Bible and the Old Testament. But when something happened, when the 1700s came, we had the age of reason and the age of enlightenment, and people thought that advancement came specifically and only through knowledge. If someone wasn't educated, they couldn't be anything of worth was the idea in the 1700s, and it still is today. Many people, in, through the exaltation of wisdom, through the worship 
of understanding, so to speak, will make education and school activities of a higher priority than church and fellowship. They will exalt homework over discipleship. And they will tell their kids that they can make an A. They better make an A or else they can't come to church. But which is better? For a kid to know God or for a kid to be the head of a university? I'd rather have a kid that makes straight D's and is a follower of Jesus Christ than anything else in the world. People exalt wisdom, and that is wrong. People also trust in strength. People trust in strength. While Jeremiah uses the term strength, Paul uses the term influential, because what is going on here with strength, it doesn't speak of physical strength, it speaks of strength of position. Humans think that if they have authority, or if people look up to them, life will be good. Everyone wants to be the people, person that someone respects rather than the person that someone bullies. But as a Christian, we will always be bullied. But people will try to work up the ladder of whatever career they're in. They'll run for public office because they think that that will give them what they're seeking. Some people become pastors because they think that will give them what they are seeking. Power, status. They want worth. They want a safety net. So they turn to strength or influence to provide that for them. But unfortunately, strength and influence just disappoints because there's always someone higher up that has more strength and more influence. It's a vapor. As Ecclesiastes says, a chasing after the wind. Wisdom, strength. The third category that humans turn to is wealth. Jeremiah calls it riches. Paul ties it to one's family. He says one's of noble birth. These are people who have never had to work for their money that he's talking about or are born into it. They can't consider life apart from money. They believe that money can make anything happen. They can buy happiness. They can joy. They can buy joy. They can supply all their needs. If there's a problem, you just throw money at it. But this is a problem not just with people who are born into money, but people who seek into money. They, they, they fall into this trap. They believe that happiness be, will be found if they just have a little bit more, which is why people flock to jobs that pay just a little bit more because they think that that money will give them something. This is one reason why some people become workaholics because they just want more and more and more. So they throw themselves into work so they can get more and more and more because they think money will solve their problems, but it doesn't. Wisdom, strength, wealth. These standards remain in our culture. They determine who is in the in crowd in school and who is in the out crowd. They're the root of all the advertising campaigns in the United States. And unfortunately, many churches fall into prey of exalting these three things of wisdom, strength, and wealth. Why do we turn to these things? Why is humans consistently throughout the centuries turned to these three things? Because for some reason, we believe that wisdom, strength, and wealth will provide something for us. But unfortunately, they are empty promises. Solomon wrote about folly in Proverbs 9, verses 13 to 18. Proverbs 9, 13 to 18, Solomon says, Folly is an unruly woman. 
She is simple and knows nothing. He's not saying that a woman is folly. He's describing folly in a woman. So okay. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on the way, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that our guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Folly, it is folly to run after these three areas instead of the God who provides so much more. It is folly, it's emptiness, a chasing after the wind. We could look at biblical examples of people who searched after these things and found nothing in them. We could look at Lot, who when Adam and Eve were standing on the cliff and they were trying to decide who would go which way and Lot looked over to the pleasant land and said, ooh, this will give me what I want and he went and pitched his tents towards Sodom. And after a little bit, Sodom was destroyed by fire from heaven, and he left with nothing. We could look at Saul, who refused to wait for Samuel to sacrifice, said, I have the power to do it myself. I can get what I want myself, and the kingship was removed from him. We could look at Judas, who was more interested in 30 pieces of silver than the man who had the words of life, which unfortunately is us so often. We could look at Absalom, we could look at Solomon, we look at Ahab and Ahaz. We could look at all these many biblical people who placed their faith and their trust in these things, who believed the lie, but in the end realized when it was too late that it was only a lie. That nothing, nothing can supply what we want. Anything we turn to besides God never provides what we think it will provide. It is a lie. So why do we turn to these things? We have the examples all over the place. We have the examples in our life. We could look in the past and say, yes, I trusted in that. I trusted in that. It didn't work, but we still go back to it. Peter uses the phrase like dogs returning to their vomit. We go back to these things. Why? When we know they will not truly provide what we want, it's because truthfully we are not turning to wealth, wisdom, and strength to trust in. Those are merely placeholders. We are turning to ourselves. Adam and Eve did not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they thought the fruit would provide what they needed. They looked at the situation. God said, I've provided everything. And Adam and Eve said, no, you haven't. I can provide for myself. And they grabbed the fruit and they ate it. It's what's called pride. I can provide I can exist. I can know apart from God. I can be God in my own life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 28 to 29, God shows the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. When we boast in the place of God, we are saying, I can do it. It's pride. When we think that we can provide for ourselves, when we think that we can only trust in ourselves, when we think that we can save ourselves, we're allowing room for us to boast in ourselves rather than God. We are following in the steps of Adam and Eve, and we will not get a different result than they did. Whenever we decide to trust in ourselves and say, only I can do this, we're following one of humanity. Whenever we think we're the only ones we can trust, whenever we push God out of the equation, messes happen. 
We can look at all the biblical examples I talked about, or we can look at our own lives. We've been there. We've all thought we could live on our own, make your own decisions, live with priorities other than God, and we have woken up in the midst of all to a mess of life where everything is unraveling because we have turned to the wrong things to trust. So what should we do? We know what humanity does. We know what we do all too often. So what should we do? What is the path we should take? We remember to whom we should trust. We remember to whom we should trust. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As I've said, God in Christ Jesus brought about a reversal of what humans exalt. Humans say, search after wisdom, search after wealth, search after strength, search after all these other things. And God says, nope, throw it all into the ditch, into the trash, in the incinerator, whatever you want to do, kick it off. Trust me alone for life. Trust me alone for salvation, God says. We should trust in God. Why? Because he's proven that he is trustworthy. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And just just to take the time to place all this out, we know that we didn't deserve this act that Jesus did. We know that we are all sinners, described as God's enemies, hopelessly lost for all of eternity. We know this is true. But place ourselves in God's shoes. If we were God and our enemies were doomed to destruction, what would we do? I know what I would do. I would come over to the cliff, I'd have a party, and watch as all of my enemies slowly dropped into the abyss. That's what I would do. I'm like, nah, I wouldn't do that. Well, how do we want our enemies in the United States? What do we want to do to them? That's what we would do to all the world if we were God. But God didn't. He reached out to his enemies and provided a way of reconciliation. It'd be like us reaching out to Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein and saying, hey, come into my house. Live with me now. I will serve you all the food. All you have to do is sit at my table and I'll, hand and feet, I will serve you. Do we want to do that? No, we don't want to do that. But that's what God did for us. Not only did he reach out to his enemies, but he reached out to those the world considers as nothing and said, I want to save you. I want to save you not because of the wealth that we have or how wise we are or our status. God gave gifts of salvation, a free gift. God gives self-acceptance to us and his own acceptance. He sets aside all guilt that we have. He makes all kinds of persons, Paul says in this passage, he makes those who are nothing into something and someone, taking away all shame that we feel that we have. So instead of thinking that we are something, instead of pursuing wisdom and wealth and power and all these things, let's admit that we have nothing, that we are not, and turn to the God who has proven that he can be trusted. If we turn to him, what does he provide? We know what all these other things we turn to provides, nothing. So what does God provide? Let's read what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. God, when we turn to him in Christ Jesus, provides righteousness. 
This is not just simply a moral virtue, but is divine acquittal. God saying, I hold nothing against you. It's what's spoken of in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, a passage that is referenced a lot, but sometimes we don't take the time to think about it. He says in Romans 3, 21 to 24, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. As we, believe, as we said, we believe that everyone is a sinner. No one can stand up and say that they are perfect. Everyone falls short of God's standard. The song says, we are all the same in need of mercy to be forgiven and be free. When we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, believing in him alone for salvation, not these other things we could trust in, we are given righteousness. Another word that's tied to this phrase righteousness is justification. We're in tax season. Anyone finished their taxes? Haha. Figured Ruth Ann would have. <laughs> I am almost done with mine, Ruth Ann. Almost. It's tax season. Everyone's preparing their finances from their past year, working on their budgets, figuring what they have done, what they haven't done, what they wish they had done, all these sorts of things. Tax season. And lots of people are looking at, okay, how much did I spend? How much did I make? And how can I make that fall in my favor? God looks at our spiritual taxes our spiritual budget sheets. And he sees us as sinful, no good, sinful, no good, completely in debt, completely spent everything before Christ. Then when Christ comes in and we turn to him instead of everything else in life, God takes the sin away and says, that is not on your account anymore. And he looks over to Jesus' account and all the good things that Jesus has done, takes it and places it in us. So now in Christ, God doesn't look at us as sinful. He doesn't see the sin at all. He sees us perfectly, completely good because of the amazing gift of Jesus Christ. Justification. Justification. So when we live our life and everyone says that we are not good enough, that we don't meet their standard for popularity or success, that we won't have any worth in life because we don't check the boxes of the things we should be pursuing, we can stand up and say, but God. But God in Christ Jesus has chosen me and declared that I have worth, that I am loved, that I am accepted. God provides righteousness to every single person that turns to trust in him. God also provides sanctification. Sanctification, he writes, Paul writes in 130, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And you will have that verse memorized by the end of the sermon. The NIV translates this word sanctification as holiness. It can also be translated not only as sanctification, holiness, it can also be translated as sainthood. It's an important, important word for Paul. All these things, these words are tied together, and it speaks about someone being brought near to God through the work of God. When we turn to Jesus in faith, not only does he declare us righteous, but we're given a home, a place to belong. We are purified and set apart as someone invited into the amazing place of of intimacy with God. We're marked by God's name through Jesus Christ. 
Paul refers to this position in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God says we belong. We have a place to be where God says you are mine. Join my family. About a month ago, I talked about an illustration where a mother sends her kids off to play and she tells them don't go play in the mud. And they go out and they play in the mud and they get filthy. And she says you ain't coming in this house unless you clean off. And they try to clean off, they can't. And they're doomed to staying outside because of all the filth in their life. God takes us who are dirty, who are not empty, able to enter the house, and he washes us off with the blood of Jesus Christ, I said last, last time. He purifies us so we can come in. He leads us by the hand and says, welcome home, you are my child. As the song says, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The amazing grace that God takes us who are not worthy and says, you are mine. You have a place to belong. God provides righteousness. We're accepted. He provides sanctification. We have a new identity. We have a place to belong. Finally, he provides redemption. Our verse for this half of the sermon, 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The term redemption, I need to camp on a little bit because there's three parts to this term. The first part is that there is a liberation, a freeing from some form of suffering, bondage, jeopardy, humiliation. So, I need a volunteer. Percy, thank you very much. Please come on up to the front. I love it how people agree without knowing what's going to happen. Do you know what these are? Yes, old-fashioned shackles. Old-fashioned shackles. They're handcuffs. I picked these up in the Colorado Territorial Prison when I was there. Don't ask. I'm not going to ask. Okay. So hold out your hands. The great thing about these handcuffs is they're not like the new ones who have the safety release. You can't get out of these without the key. Yep, they're not like the ones you try to get out. Yep, see, can't. <laughs> All right, so you are in bondage, yes? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay, good. So if I release you from those handcuffs, will I have redeemed you? Yes. No, sorry. Wait. What? <laughs> you see, there's multiple parts for the term redemption. The first one, you've been set free from bondage. The second one is that there must be some sort of personal cost paid for someone to be set free. So, is anyone here willing me to pay me $5,000 to set Percy free from these handcuffs? Anyone? 4000 4000 3000 2000 You're doing horrible things for his self-esteem. 
$1,000. Anyone willing to pay me $1,000? Yes, I got $1,000 over here. All right, so thank you, Tim. He's now your new best friend, okay? But stay right there. So if I accept Tim's $1,000, yeah, you're really driving a hard bargain. If I accept Tim's $1,000 and set you free from those handcuffs, will, I, will you have been redeemed? Uh, no. Correct. But yes. You have, will have not been redeemed because there is a third part to redemption. The first part is you've been set free from some sort of bondage, some sort of suffering, jeopardy, humiliation. The second part is someone has paid something, a personal cost to set you free. The third step that must be taken for redemption is that... You have transferred allegiance. You've changed masters from the person who had you in bondage to the person who set you free. Consider what is written. Stay right there. Consider what is written in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There is a transferring of allegiance. So, if he pays me $1,000 and you declare that you will serve him for the rest of your life and then I set you free from these, will you have been redeemed? Yes. Okay, I'll take my $1,000 now. Okay, let me go. These are really cool. You know, you, you, yeah. it's a key. Have you, have you worked with these before? No. Yeah, because you just turn the key and it releases up here. Isn't that fun? Mm-hmm. If you pay me $1,000, I'll let you keep these. I, I don't have that much. Oh, that's too bad. I could give you something that I don't need <laughs> that you could use. Oh, that I could use, huh? Like, what are you, what are you willing to trade me? Mm. Think about it. Give him a hand. Redemption. Set free from bondage by someone's personal cost and a transferring of allegiance to one person to the other. When we are saved through Jesus Christ, it does not mean that we can do whatever we want to do. Salvation means that we follow the one who has saved us. We honor him. The end result of redemption is glorification. Because our redemption is finally realized when we stand before the throne of God and he looks at us and says, welcome home, good and faithful servant. In light of what's going to happen glorification, we live our redemption now, seeking to honor God with our bodies. But as we live now, we remember the day when we will honor him without a fight. Today, we fight with ourselves. We... we in 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to have a sermon about keeping our bodies in line, buffeting ourselves like, a, like an athlete so that we will follow him, so that we will keep the terms of our redemption, seeking to serve God with our life. God provides righteousness. We're accepted. God provides sanctification. We have a new identity. God provides redemption, freedom from everything that has chained, chained us, a purpose to our lives now. So, if God has done so much for us and he provides all these things that we truly yearn for, why should we turn to him? Because we know it's true and because he is worth it. He has proven that he is worth following. Sometimes during our Wednesday night prayer meeting, I say that, you know, why do we pray? Why do we seek God? Because we are needy people 
and because he is worthy of being sought. He's the God who is worthy. Our lives have proven that everything else we turn to is not worth it. So why don't we give him a shot? I'm speaking to two audiences today. First, I'm speaking to those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. There are plenty of people who go to church and who've gone to church all their lives, but they've never made the decision for themselves to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They're still trusting in all these other things. They're still placing their faith in all these other things that are empty, full of lives. They think that they're good because of what they're doing, but they're not. By never making the decision to trust in Jesus, there's no hope. There are some people who say, oh, I believe in God, but they've never made the decision to trust in Jesus for their salvation. The Bible says that even the demons believe there is a God and they tremble and they're going to be doomed to hell for all of eternity. It's not enough just to believe in God. Everyone must make a decision for themselves to say, I trust Jesus Christ for my salvation. I follow him. If you've never made that decision for yourself, stop trusting in all the other things that the world offers and turn to the only thing that will save, God through Jesus Christ. May today be the day of salvation in your life. But I'm also speaking to a second audience, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus for salvation. You trust him to save you for eternity, but for some reason, our faith is still in life, trusting in human wisdom, strength, or wealth to carry us through. We say, yes, Jesus, I trust you for eternity, but not for my decisions today, for not, not for providing what I need, not for showing me how to live my life. I'm going to trust everything else instead of you. And if this is you, I ask you to stop, repent, and change your priorities. By depending on him, we can fulfill what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31. He says, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in everything else of what you can and cannot do. Boast in the Lord. He is worth it. Instead of turning to all the wrong things to trust, whether for eternity or for today, let us trust in God alone. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are trustworthy and you've proven that you are trustworthy. Forgive us for not accepting that, for searching for all sorts of other things, trying to better ourselves through wisdom or status or wealth or so many other things. Forgive us for not turning to you and trusting in you, laying our lives down and saying we are yours, but keeping them for ourselves. Forgive us of our pride, thinking that we can live without you. And Lord, I ask that you would show every single one of us the ways that we're living in pride instead of humbly trusting and following you. Thanks, Father. Amen.